Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm Rob Stennett, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, how's it going, dude? Oh, it's going great. I'm feeling the need for speed today. We're going to do this episode super fast because we're talking about Top Gun. Part of the reason we're talking about this, one, it's a movie worth talking about, setting all sorts of box office records. And two, since our podcast began, I think this is the one that's been requested the most times for in sure. our Facebook group. I've had people texting me. I've literally like been walking around like at a party at a friend's house. People like, when are you going to talk about Maverick? And someone like, okay, this is in the zeitgeist. I think everyone in America has seen this now. For so sure. let's, let's jump in. Let's talk about it. I actually just saw this. I saw this movie like a month late. I had so much going on that I didn't see it like opening weekend like everyone else. So I just saw it. And let me tell you, I get the hype. What a picture. <laughs> So I want to level set here, and um, I'm curious, Andrew, of what your relationship with the original film was. And I feel like every film we've covered lately, it's like, oh, this is how old I was, and this is how old I was. But I think you have to talk about this with Top For Gun sure. and like what your relationship was. So what was your relationship with Top Gun? It sounds like <laughs> it's really romantic all of a sudden. But like, was it more of a Kelly McGillis to you? Was it more of a uh, something that... <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but what I'm saying is like, when did you encounter this movie? What did it mean to you? I did not have a very romantic relationship with this movie. So similar to most of the movies that we talk about that came from the 80s, I didn't see them until I was in upper high school or college um, just because I hadn't gotten around to it. Right. They were sort of past the cultural phenomenon. They were something that like people talked about, but. You know, I was seeing stuff that was current. So I don't think I saw Top Gun until I was maybe a junior in high school. So mid 2000s, 2004, 2005. And I remember like really liking it and thinking it was a ton of fun. But it wasn't a movie that was like formative for me in a way that I know it was for a lot of people in the 80s or for like a lot of stepdads that saw it when it came out. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I do think this is a movie that like this sounds so cheesy to say, but it was a cool movie. Like it was oh, for sure. the, the height of what cool was in 1986. Like Tom Cruise with the glasses, the Danger Zone soundtrack, the cinematography. This is like the beginning of Jerry Bruckheimer. I mean, he had done Beverly Hills Cop, I think, and a little bit more. But like when we think about the modern like Bruckheimer machine of all the Michael Bay movies, a lot of movies that like I roll my eyes at and whatever else, like this was the ground zero of like, hey, this guy is going to make cool movies. Not necessarily like tons of depth, but like it is a buckle your seatbelt up, thrill ride, cool movie experience. And that's what Top Gun was to me and pretty much was until a month ago. Right. I still remember feeling that when I watched it 20 years later was like, oh, this is cool. That's why people love this movie, right? Is this is fun. This is cool. It's not necessarily deep, but like, but it's different from like a normal action movie because of the cool factor, right? There's plenty of action movies that have tried to copy the aesthetic, but they're not necessarily as like cool. And I think there is something about, we can get into talking about it, but the like, the unbridled machismo of, or machismo, which one is it? I'm not really sure. I think it's machismo. I don't know. Someone can fact check us on that. But just the uncontrollable manliness of kind of both of these movies, but definitely the first one that may be a little problematic, but just like how masculine Top Gun is that puts it into this just kind of like 
cool guy movie um, that you just like, you know, makes you feel awesome just watching it. You want to be that. Yeah, there's been a lot of revisionist history when it comes to Top Gun of like what it means and what certain scenes means and that sort of thing. But in the time and again, I was 10 years old, but in the time that it came out, it was just like these are the coolest dudes in the planet just like going toe to toe, you know, like Val Kilmer versus Tom Cruise. They're beautiful. They're cool. They're macho. They're manly. And they're just kind of fighting, snapping at each other, all that sort of stuff. And that's what Top Gun was. It's like a manliness contest from start to finish. Even from the, like, picking the girl up at the bar at the beginning all the way through who's the best fighter pilot, it's like who's the ultimate man is kind of the movie. Which, like I said, I think in the original, it treads this line of being maybe a little bit problematic of, like, how absurdly macho it is. That I think this sequel actually does a good job of leveling out a little bit while still having that really cool energy that is exciting. So... Top Gun Maverick releases right around Memorial Day. I don't have the exact release date in front of me, but it releases right about then. And since it releases, this is the biggest movie of the year. It's setting box office records. People are flocking back to the theaters. What's amazing, this movie was like pushed back for production for like a year. And then it's ready to launch right before COVID hits. And so then all of a sudden it's pushed back again. And then it's going to be the end of 2020 and then the end of 2021. This is a movie that keeps getting pushed back over and over again. So I wasn't sure it was going to hit or be that big of a deal. And then all of a sudden, it seems like two things have happened. One, everyone has seen this movie. Two, everybody loves this movie. And I guess my big question for you, Andrew, is like, why does everyone love this movie? What is so lovable about it? I'm not sure I have a clear answer to why everyone loves this movie. I know why I loved this movie. Okay, let's start there. Sitting in the theater and walking out of the theater, I was thinking, this movie is why you go to a movie theater. I don't know how good this movie is going to be, like, in my living room. If I were to stream this in three months, you know, off of wherever it's going to be streaming, I don't know how good it'll be. But I know sitting in the theater, and I specifically went out and picked the best theater I could with, like, the Dolby sound and the super deep black projection, like I was like, let's find the showing at the best theater I can find in L.A. And L.A. has all sorts of, you know, fancy theaters with all sorts of projection because they're, you know, they're really into movies in L.A. is what I hear. Like, turns like out in, there. in Hollywood, they really love their movies. Um, but I went out and like purposely picked like the best theater I could find, knowing it would probably be worth it. And my God, it was. Um, just sitting there, I was like, this is such an experience. I'm feeling this movie. This is such a rush. This is so much fun. Yeah, we talked about this in our Spider-Man episode a little bit of like the theaters were packed out again and like the fun eventness of like a movie. But I was like, this is a film that uses every tool in the toolbox of like what a film should be. You feel like you're in the airplane, you know, you hear the sound. The, right. the screen, the sights, the like, like it is so visceral. And I do think that's part of what people were responding to. Ten years from now, when we look at this movie, part of the story will be like, oh, this is the movie that got America back to the theaters. Maybe even this is one of the movies that saved theaters or kind of preserved them for a little while longer uh, yeah. because people were so excited about it. And this is a reminder of what movies could be. I think that's the conversation that like we're having or, you know, movie people are having all the time right now is like, are movie theaters dying? Is it worth going to the theater or should I just stay home and watch this on my couch? And so movie theaters are like refitting all of their seats to be like recliners and cushy to try to like 
at least make it more comfortable to try to get people in the theaters, right? And I think, I love that you compared it to the Spider-Man Homecoming episode we did, because I think there are really two great arguments for going to the theater. And one is to see a movie with people, and it's for the crowd. It's for the communal experience. And I think you really get that with, like, uh, like scary movies we talked about are great to watch with people. It makes it so much better. Or like fan event movies like a Spider-Man or something that has intense fan culture around it, like a like a Star Wars. And I don't think Top Gun necessarily fits into either of those categories. I think it fits purely into the, the, the category of like I, I could have watched that theater probably by myself in a theater and had a very similar experience. It wasn't right. necessarily about the crowd to me. It was about giant screen and Feeling the sound like the sound design in this movie. If this movie doesn't win an op- sound design Oscar, I don't know what they're doing <laughs> because the sound design in this movie was phenomenal. Like, yeah, the Oscar people it. deserve to be slapped if this movie does not win a sound design Oscar <laughs> too soon. Sorry, I'm taking you off the rails. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, technically, this movie is everything you want. I remember my parents telling me like what it was like to see Star Wars for the first time on the big screen. And I feel like that's how I felt seeing this movie of like, this is what it should be sitting in this theater. So I feel like so many movies try to accomplish what this movie did. I do think there's one more thing that makes this movie work so well that most summer blockbusters don't do. And that is... This movie shows you what's at stake really clearly and like just lets you know that and like takes you along from the ride. The opening scene where he's trying to hit, I don't know, Mach 10 or mm-hmm. a Navy yeah, guy 10. is going to get really mad at me. But like I think it's Mach 10 and he's trying to do it and they're like, it's never been done before. And Ed Harris is like smoking a cigar and they're all out there and they're like, can you do it? We're like so clear on like what the goal is, what he's trying to do, what could go wrong. He could lose his career. He could lose a billion dollar plane. They're making those stakes so clear the whole way through. Even the mission they're trying to do, they highlight that mission like seven times before he actually flies it. They show a map where it's like, hey, this is how he does. They do a practice one with like cones in a field and like an X (laughs) where, where they're like trying to do it. They like make it so clear that like, hey, this is the thing we're trying to accomplish. My young kids can understand it. If you're old, you understand it. Like, you know exactly what's happening here. And right. I just saw the new Jurassic Park. And in contrast, this is a movie that's like, hey, we're going to start throwing more plot elements at it. We're going to put more characters in, more things. And I was like, I literally don't know what's at stake here and what we're trying to accomplish. And there's no emotional resonance between any of the characters. And it's just this like mishmash of like stuff that's thrown at you. I think even Marvel movies do this where they're just we're going to throw more and more. And this movie made it so simple. Like, hey, there's a bad guy. They have missiles that are going to blow everyone up. We've got to get it in this impossible mission. Here we go. And that's it. That's the movie. And it's so clear that you're like, okay, I'm in. I'm on for the ride. And there's a ton of characters. But I remember about halfway through the movie, like seeing these other other pilots. And I'm like, oh, who's that guy? What's his code name? Is that Cyclone? Is that Fanboy? Like, who are all these guys? And then like realizing like it doesn't matter. Like, honestly, it it doesn't matter. Like, you just really need Rooster, Hangman, Phoenix. That's it. And Bob. And Bob, right? And whereas in the first one, there was really about this, like, rivalry between all of the guys. And so you really did need to know, like, oh, that's Merlin. And that's, you know, like, all of these other guys. And, like, you don't in this movie. And when I, like, kind of started to, like, settle into that, I was like, oh, great. And the movie does a good job of not getting swept up in that, right? They, like, know what's important and they know what to focus on. 
So let's get to the categories. What was the most meaningful scene in this high-octane, high-flying movie? I guess for me, the most meaningful scene was the least high-octane, the least (laughs) (laughs) whatever else, the movie that you could watch on your phone and would still be dramatic, which is when Maverick and Iceman meet up. Okay. Um, One of the lost Meaning of the Movie episodes that we, Andrew and I, talk about a bunch. I'm so glad uh, you're going to talk about this. May never meet the light of day. It it will never see the light of day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe after this episode, there'll be an outcry and we're like, okay, we'll let you listen to it. Uh, there is this movie called Val, which is a documentary about Val Kilmer's life. And I strongly recommend it. It is this documentary about just all of his life. And he filmed himself like growing up and he filmed himself in his first roles. And now he literally speaks with like that thing that you put on your throat to kind of give you a voice. Yeah, he has throat cancer and he has to plug a hole in his neck in order to talk. And so the whole time... He lingers over this movie. I think part of what's so smart is he's the guy who, like, when Tom Cruise gets in trouble early on, when Maverick, everything falls apart, he's the guy who's like, okay, I want to get you back to Top Gun. He's kind of like that big brother who keeps pulling his little brother out of the fire. He's that presence in this movie. And so they show a lot of text threads with him. People are talking about him. Oh, you're just here because of Iceman. Like, Iceman becomes this adored person. And then Maverick is, like, the guy who's, like, Kind of the guy who's in Arrested Development, the guy who, not the TV show, but just as a, <laughs> just as a person, as a human who's like, oh, he never grew up. He never kind of grew past this, like, Top Gun macho thing. He's still trying to prove himself. He's still trying to fight the man. Where Iceman is much more like, hey, I've arrived. I've done this. So they finally yeah. have this scene where the two meet up, and it's just powerful. He's typing on the computer, Val Kilmer is, and Tom Cruise is talking with him, and you see this, like, friendship and reverence and connection between these two guys that is like 35 years of a friendship uh and my longest friends i know what it's like to get back to them and just at my darkest moments just have that meaningful conversation and that connection is actually what grounds this movie into something that's hey more than just a sequel it's like no these are guys who like know each other and love each other and care about each other I love that you brought up Val, like the documentary in the middle of this, because I when I was watching that scene, I was like, I adore this scene and this scene means so much to me. And I was like, I wonder if I would care at all if I hadn't seen Val, (laughs) like the overall arc of that movie is, you know, talking about his his career and how as he's trying to make this sort of resurgence and come back and figuring out what acting means to him, he gets throat cancer and basically completely loses his voice and has to you know, figure out the meaning of his life again in the middle of that. And it's incredibly, it's sort of an incredibly depressing film while also like incredibly meaningful because it's someone trying to take stock of their entire life um, of which we've only seen the like the public view of it. Anyway, so seeing that and then seeing them mirror that because Val Kimmer can't really talk. And so if he's going to be in the movie, they had to use that. And so using those kind of elements of Val Kilmer's actual story and feeling that reflected in this like admiral who is at the top of his game, who is now still this presence, but can't speak and only has to type. Right. There was this like just incredible depth that I think had I not known everything in that documentary, I'd be like, this is a weird turn for Iceman. Why are they having him type everything? What a weird choice for this scene, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I do wonder how much knowing about his story plays into that. But I felt like as a fan of Val Kilmer's, like this was the swan song and the curtain call that he never got. Yeah. And that was so meaningful there was like, hey, he had throat cancer. It happened like it's hard to write that into a story. 
For sure. And so he just kind of disappeared outside of the documentary, just like fell off the face of movies, you know, even though this guy had been acting for 30 years, all of a sudden he's gone. Yeah. And so for him to get to step back out on the stage and really have a moment, but also a moment that was motivated in the movie. It was like, hey, this guy like became a, I, I don't know what his rank was, but admiral. what was he like a general? Yeah. No, he was. This yeah, guy he's, become he's, a, he's in the Navy, so he's an admiral. An admiral. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so nervous about like. I, my military friends who are going to, you know, <laughs> correct me on these things. So please, you say a lot of things on a podcast, send me emails, respond, <laughs> post on Facebook. It's fine. But Val Kilmer's an admiral and um, it's motivated by the story. But it's also like, hey, this is Val Kilmer, the guy who's Doc Holliday. This is the guy who's, you know, Iceman. This is the guy who's Mad Mardigan. All these incredible roles that I know of his. And I'm like, he finally gets a curtain call. So all those things coming together and just, again, that the performance was good like Cruz's performance and Kilmer's performance was like these two dudes care about each other these two dudes have been through war and back together his his acting like he doesn't speak for basically the entire scene and then when he does at the end it's actually his son mixed with some AI actually creating the voice it's incredible what they did there that's not his his voice but his silent acting and the gravitas that he brings just by sitting in a chair and like typing and interacting with Tom Cruise was like, it's it's not fan service. We've talked about fan service before on this podcast, but I thought that Iceman was either going to be like dead in this movie and like just be like the picture on the wall that they show. Right. Because they show that yep. picture in the in the in the trailer of like Admiral Kaczynski. Right. I thought he was just going to be kind of a presence that was like a legacy. But their ability to bring him in and have him be this figure that is trying to pull Maverick like forward in his life as it makes the first movie have meaning. Right. What we saw, the relationship that built through that first movie, actually, we say, okay, that mattered and that is pulling this character forward. It's what a sequel should do. It's taking something you saw from the first movie and then turning it into something like deeper and stronger and new. And it's it's wonderful. Yeah, and I think a lot of people saw this movie who didn't know all that backstory, and it still worked and it played. For sure. But then when you have all those that backstory, it like means so much more. Absolutely. And so I think that's what makes it so powerful. For you, is there like a least meaningful part of this movie? It's interesting to talk about meaning in this movie because so much of it is just the cool fun factor. But was there something that you were like, Bleh, like I don't, you know, get this out of here? Uh, pretty much the whole romance with Jennifer Connelly, just like fell flat for me i think partially because everything like you're kind of the romance police in most movies you're like ah i don't really believe that jeremy renner and amy adams fall in love and arrival you're like <laughs> i'm, I'm I don't really buy this relation yeah i think you're sort of the romance police and so normally i'm like what they're he's a man she's a woman they're attractive let's get it on you know like that's that's what it is for me um and jennifer Connolly is an actress who i love i think yeah. she's super talented um, and I think she does a good job. I don't think it's her fault, but I just think maybe it's the story's fault or maybe it's the legacy of her character, which is like everyone else is so rooted in the first movie. Sure. And she's she's just like there's a one line where he like hooks up with the Admiral's daughter in Top Gun okay. uh, and then kind of alluded to. And I think she's supposed to be that character. Yes, That's I think what you're I correct. Took it as. Yeah. And so there's one little like, hey, she is part of the original, but we never see her and the original Top Gun and just everything in the movie. I was like, OK, this is just like we're checking a box here. And so even hmm. when she shows up at the end, like, dude, at the end of Top Gun, 
I wrote a mo- novel one time called The Almost True Story of Ryan Fisher. And in the end of my novel, I have this scene that actually alludes to the Top Gun meeting of Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise in the diner because it is like this super like sexy, romantic, amazing scene. And I think like the end of this movie is trying to do the same thing where she's standing there with a Porsche and it's just like sparks flying. But I'm like, all it made me think was like, oh, this is the one thing that is lesser than the original Top Gun. Hmm. That that romance between Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise was just sparkle fire. Uh, and the first, <laughs> I just said sparkle fire, but it sparkle was it fire. was sparkle fire. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I was, I mean, I remember seeing that movie at like ten years old, and I was into like Star Wars and Transformers. Yeah, and I saw those two hook up, and I was like. You're like, I'm into girls into now. Girls. <laughs> like, like, that was the moment I came of age. I was just like, whatever's happening there, I went in. Like, you were like, take that looks my amazing. breath away. <laughs> it's true. Oh, man. I think for my whole generation, like, that's one of those, like, romantic relationships that it's just like, okay, that's, like, that's what I want. So anyway. Sure. I found so much meaning, or <laughs> meaning is too much. <laughs> I found it, like, the core of the movie was the relationship in Top Gun. Where this one is just like, okay, we're checking a box. That's what it was for me. So, okay, so I think my distance from the original Top Gun helps me here because there was a portion in the beginning of the movie when they're at the bar and everything where in my brain I was like, is this a character from the first movie? I don't know the first movie well enough to know. It's clearly not Kelly McGillis, right? But like who? And then I was like, okay, I think it's just a new character. Um, But... I disagree with you here. Like my counterpoint to this is that that romance, while it might not be sparkle fire, I think is important to ground the movie emotionally. And without it, Tom Cruise doesn't go through a full journey because I think the romance element isn't just checking a box. It's giving him a foundation. His character arc in this is figuring out how to grow. Right. He is still this pilot who is just obsessed with like all I do is fly on best flyer out there but he does it now in total isolation I think it's interesting that he is now flying jets that doesn't have a backseat guy right he has not replaced goose right he does everything alone and he is isolated and when they get together it's this idea of like there is more to life and I think we see Iceman's character as having had a wife for a long time right like he's dying of throat cancer and like his wife is there and we see her for a half second but I think it's this comparison of like Iceman grew and had a family and he became an admiral and he lived this whole life and so I think while the relationship with Jennifer Connelly's character might not be this like incredibly sexually charged relationship like it was in the first movie It's a romantic relationship that you want for this character, which is like you need more in your life. You're isolated. You push everyone away. You're only after this high octane cool factor. And in order to be a full person, you need an actual like foundation and roots. I do agree with that, that like, hey, this is about like a relationship. This isn't about like, oh, we just have chemistry together. Right. And definitely what's at stake for Maverick is his career did not pan out the way that he meant it to. It's like, there's lots of references of like, okay, you're kind of at the end of the line. Like you never got promoted the way you're supposed to. We kind of put you in the desert because of your skill set. So your skills were good enough to get promoted, but you did not learn how to like manage or lead or politic or do the other things to really find a career. And also there is no one in your life. Like, like he has this kind of few sidekick characters who are through it. Um, but outside of that, there's no one in his life that really gives him meaning and depth. So I do think that is true. That is a big part of the story. 
to me, that really helped give him a more well-rounded character that wasn't just this cool, like, macho guy. He had to be something more than that in, in order to be, like, the best version of himself. Which is why, to me, like, I know we oftentimes jump over the lead protagonist as our most meaningful character, but to me, there was kind of no way around it. The most meaningful character in this was, like, full-on Tom Cruise. I couldn't look away. Even with all these other characters, like, he was the one that brought me through the movie, and I was, like, fully invested in his journey. Well, and part of the narrative that's evolving around this movie is, is Tom Cruise the last movie star? Um... And I don't know how to answer that, but I do know he has this magnetism that drives this movie forward. That's just uh, makes it tick. And what's so interesting is like, this is also a movie about aging. And this is a movie about kind of Tom Cruise himself, which is like, are you aging out of these roles? Are you aging out of playing Ethan Hunt and Mission mm -hmm. Impossible, even though there's another movie coming out? It's kind of like, how much longer can you keep doing this? is the question the movie asks, and I think it's a really smart question. How much longer can you keep being the best fighter on the planet? How much longer can you keep being the best spy? He's almost defeated time, because he still looks amazing. Like, I think that's part, again, the scene with Val Kilmer and him, it's like he looks not that different than he did 35 years ago, right. where Val Kilmer's like, okay, like, and, and he's dealing with cancer, but you look at any other cast member from that movie, you look at Tim Robbins, you look at Anthony Edwards, you look at, like, Meg Ryan, you look at all of his contemporaries in that movie and they've aged, which is what human beings do. And like Tom Cruise, because of like science, maybe Scientology, I don't know what all the reasons are, but like <laughs> he for made, whatever reason, he, he looks great. It's funny that you bring up Scientology because I, I talk to a lot of people that like struggle to watch Tom Cruise movies because they're like, I just can't get past the like weird factor. Um, Like I know Tom Cruise's like personal yeah. life is like very bizarre and I struggle to watch him on screen, and I think that's fair, but I don't struggle with that. I am so captivated. He, he has a way of just pulling you into every frame that he is in, and the way that he does that is, I think, unparalleled. Like, I'm an evangelist for the Mission Impossible movies. I think, this, especially since Christopher McQuarrie took over. No, they're, they're amazing, and he's yeah. amazing. Like, his, his career is, like, so good. I think he's not Daniel Day-Lewis. He's not Jack Nicholson. You know, he's not like this all-time incredible actor. Right. Uh, but I do think he may be an all-time incredible movie star. When we're right. talking about put his face in the poster and it's worth $100 million, like, he's probably the best to ever do that. You know, like, including George Clooney, like, Robert Redford, name the list. Like, no one's had a 40-year run of, like, risky business. His face is on the poster all the way to Maverick, you know, which is 2022, right. 1983 to 2022. His face is on the poster, and that's what sells movies. And it's such an incredible career. It absolutely is. And I think for the last 10 years, it's it's interesting, like the resurgence of Tom Cruise. I don't think we can talk about him without talking about Christopher McQuarrie, who's I think their careers are now intensely intertwined. They're, they're basically like two halves of one coin now. The one hardly does anything without the other. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie was, did the final pass on, on this script. And I think the two of them understand filmmaking in the way that they do it. And they know how to make films in a very similar way, which is it's like the ultimate show don't tell. It's the ultimate like way to create something visual on screen that you feel and is emotionally compelling without a whole bunch of dialogue, without like 
intense character development, but it's why the Mission Impossible movies work so well. It's why this works so well. The two of them are like in lockstep with how to tell a story in a way that is just absolutely thrilling. Get your heart pumping and get you involved. So one of my big things about movies is the third act in so many Hollywood movies falls apart. You've probably heard me talk about this before, but like Marvel movies, like by the time we get to the third act, I'm like, okay, there's going to be a big final battle and here we go. You know, Zack Snyder, like all of his movies, it's like, okay, we're going to destroy Metropolis. Here we go. Yeah. So many like (laughs) big epic movies, it's like the third act falls apart. And I think what I love about Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise is their third acts are big set pieces, lots of action, but they are so stinking thrilling. The third act of Mission Impossible Fallout is this epic, epic, you know, thrill ride. The third act of this movie, I was just like edge of my seat. Like it's become a cliche, but that's how I felt in this movie was I was like, I knew they would live. I knew it would be okay, but I still wasn't quite sure. And I was like, how is this so good? How is this so thrilling? And you know what that mission is going to be, because like you said, they walk you through every step of the mission, the whole movie. So when you're finally flying it, it could be really boring, but it's not because, you know, the stakes so well that, you know, if any of these things go wrong and then they start introducing new elements that you weren't expecting. And it's like everything starts to twist. And yeah, I knew Hangman had to show up. That was his role in the movie was that he had to, like, come back and be not selfish and be the hero like. A lot of these beat points I expected, but like I didn't expect them to like get shot down. You know, like I knew Miles Teller was going to come back and save him. Like I saw that coming, but like they throw new twists at you that you like, oh, I didn't. Okay, how are they going to how are they going to do this? I don't think they're going to die because they're the main characters and this is Top Gun. But like, how on earth are they going to get out of this one? And that's what makes it thrilling. Okay, so I don't know how we've got this far in the podcast. You just mentioned his name, but we haven't really talked about Miles Teller who is, if there's any young actor who I'm, like, following his career, he's in my top probably three or four that, like, I just love this guy. I love what he does. I love what he brings. Whiplash is a movie that we have to talk about at some point. Mm -hmm. He gives this, like, tour-de-force performance. But he is so good going toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise in this movie. Like, he holds his own. There's My favorite scenes in this movie are almost, even though I mentioned the Iceman scene, the scenes that I was really like loving and smiling in were just all the scenes where they're kind of going toe to toe. And I think like one thing that a sequel can do that's good. There's a lot of things sequels can do that like fall apart, make it cheesy and it's just a rehash. But one thing that sequels can do that's good is they give an instant backstory to characters. And the fact that his name is Rooster, his dad was Goose. And, you know, in his mind, Maverick is the person who killed his father. That just gives such depth to the relationship and that's really what makes it tick. So I think we talked about Jennifer Connelly and that relationship and that being important. But I definitely think the soul of this movie yes. is a relationship between Rooster and Maverick. Right. Uh, that is the soul of the movie for sure. I think the Jennifer Connelly relationship is like it's easier and quicker. And so it gives him a foundation, an emotional foundation in order to fight for the relationship with Rooster. He sees how to get out of isolation in order to basically because like Rooster is basically his surrogate son that he doesn't know how to father. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the smartest things they did is the ultimate conflict is not you killed my dad. It's You've been in my way like he threw his papers out so that he couldn't get into the Naval Academy. Right. Like he, the, the main conflict is you set my career back four years, which seems less important than you killed my dad. But I feel no, like. No, no, but the main conflict is I've got to save Rooster in a way that I couldn't save Goose. And so that's oh, what he's right. doing over and over again. You know, and so, yeah, the main conflict is 
he stopped him there. But the motivation for every one of his actions is yes. like, I took Goose's life. I couldn't save him. And I promised his mom, like, I'm going to save your son. Right. And so that kid who was sitting on the piano in Top Gun, like, I'm going to save that kid, you know, and that's what is motivating Tom Cruise for the whole movie. Right. Tom Cruise's main conflict is like, how do I save this kid? But I think they were so smart in like having put in more backstory of like what Tom Cruise has done in order to try and save this kid over the last few years that wasn't just like absolutely that they didn't just show up with like this kid shows up and he's like you killed my dad right if that was it if that was their only relationship it would have been like all right man like you guys need to have a talk and get over it because it was an accident but you see that there's been like all this other stuff that he's been like trying to protect him and doing it badly and then like but it was because his mom asked him to and so now tom Cruise is protecting his mom so that rooster doesn't hate his own mother and there's there's all this other stuff that they fill in to make those 30 years feel lived in that then makes their conflict feel like a bigger hurdle to get over absolutely i mean that the best scene in the movie is like when <laughs> They're both shot down in the middle of Russia or Iran or I don't know. Do they ever even say where who the foreign enemy is? They don't. Is it ever listed or is it just it's just some foreign country, right? Some like nameless foreign country. They never they never say it. And it's very intentionally so. And so it's like, hey, this is a, you know, nameless country, nameless bad guy. I mean, I think I kind of took it like, oh, we're supposed to say this is Russia, but they never I don't even know if they you really see the people there that much. And no, so you very, don't like, like when they're like running across the field, it's all like snowy and all the fighter pilots always are like they're like stormtroopers. Like you can't see their their, their faces, I, which I thought was really interesting that it was like a totally nameless country. Yeah, someone's going to fact check us and be like, it's something Slavia. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, the name of the country is not in the movie, but there are all sorts of illusions that you can put clues together like, oh, sure. this type of typography is only in, you know, Tibet, <laughs> right. It's probably know. not Iran because there's like snow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's what happens when you just start talking on a podcast and you name countries. But yeah, for me, it was like, this is Russia. Let's just be honest. The, like, yeah. the, the bad guy is Russia. But anyway, and the bad guy in the first one was Russia. Right. Like, so I think I, we're like we're making a similar connection. And, you know, Russia's got a lot going on right now. Like, that's a different <laughs> podcast, but there, there's a lot happening there. And yeah, so we're, we're not exactly friendly with the Russians. Yeah, we're not cool, Russia. And so anyway, the best scene in the movie is they both get shot down. They're standing in the middle of the snow and he's like, I was trying to find the quote, but he's like, I'm I was trying to save you. And he's like, I was trying to save you. And they're kind of like yelling at each other and they're getting a fight. And just that like back and forth repartee between them two is like so solid gold. Yeah, agreed. And then what pays it all off, right, is that they have to sneak through and he has to find an old F-14, the original like plane that he has. And that's the plane with all the dials, without the digital equipment. That's the plane he has to use, the inferior plane, the only Maverick can fly that actually like saves them and gets them out of it. And, you, right. and that touch right there, those are the little details that like make this movie destroy almost every other nostalgic cash grab movie that's made. Right. Those little nostalgia buttons, they're not just there for grins, right? They, they actually push the story forward. I would say like the biggest maybe just nostalgia scene for the sake of it is probably like the football scene. Yeah. But even then he's trying to like build community, which is maybe just an excuse to have the scene so that you had a parallel to the, the volleyball scene. But like for some reason, I don't even care. Like it was still it was so cool, which we've kind of gotten away from talking about in this in this podcast. But this movie is so cool just from start to finish 
the cool factor of this movie, how it, I mean, you just like grinning because of how cool this movie is. And it makes you feel good. I think that's like ultimately the reason that like so many people have gone and seen it is it's just like, oh, that was fun. You know, I went and saw it with a group of friends opening night, bunch of Gen Xers. And we went out afterwards and I was like, how did you feel watching it? Like I actually asked the meaning of the movie questions. I was like, OK, yeah. <laughs> how did you feel watching this movie? And everyone's the same thing. Like it was fun. Like I just enjoyed it. And like that's what this movie does. It just yeah. like lets you enjoy going to the movies, lets you enjoy the characters like it sets everything up and pays it off. But there is like some theme and some substance as well. So what is the meaning of the movie then for you? I think this movie is a movie about redemption. This movie is a movie about like all these sort of failures that happen in the middle of your life, right? Like you have relationships that have gone really wrong. He made a mistake with Goose and that mistake haunts him. He somehow lost his relationship with the Kelly McGillis character and that mistake costs him. He has all these mistakes with his career and those mistakes cost him. At the end of Top Gun, he's like, hey, I want to be like a teacher. Like, I want to be a trainer uh, in Top Gun. And like the Lubbock character kind of like laughs. He's like, oh, you do being a teacher. That's amazing. But we see he doesn't even, he can't even become a teacher. So there's all these sort of failures that happen over and over again of where we thought his life was going to go at the end of Top Gun to where his life actually went. And this movie is about looking at those failures one by one and saying it's not too late. There's still redemption in those relationships. There's still hope for you, Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> I love that. I think that pretty much hits it dead on. If there is like a like a deeper meaning to the movie, I do think it is about redemption. I think the like reigning overall like takeaway from this movie is how much joy and how much fun you can have at the movies. I think I mean, I think it, maybe maybe that's like a little bit meta. And I don't think I would feel that without the redemption plotline you're you're talking about. Like this isn't just a, not to throw Michael Bay under the bus, but just like a, you know, Michael Bay movie where things explode and it's like technically a, a lot of fun, but there's not a ton of story like the story here does have characters that you care about. And this movie would not be as fun if you didn't care about these characters. Like, even a lot of these, like, almost nameless pilots. Like, I really cared about Phoenix and Bob, and I don't even know what their relationship is necessarily. Like, did Phoenix have some kind of thing with Rooster? Maybe. They don't really get into it, but, like, I get that hint maybe a little bit. Like, I don't know anything about a lot of these characters, but, like, I care about them because there is a heart, bar like, buried right under the surface of this movie that makes... All of the joy that you feel and the rush of it. And we didn't talk at all about the fact that they were in actual jets pulling actual G's and all of the craziness they went through to accomplish that. But all of the thrill that you feel because it's rooted in a story and characters that you care about, you get that joy. And it is so much like actual fun, not like, you know, I don't want to call it synthetic fun, but it's not like tricking me into having fun. I'm having an actual emotionally good time sitting in that seat. Yeah, it's earned fun. Absolutely. Everything about this movie is earned, and it's earned because it's done so well. It's done so thoughtfully. This movie destroys the original Top Gun. Like, the original Top Gun kind of falls apart. It doesn't really hang together. It's, like, fun, but it's, like, just kind of loosely pot and not good. This movie is so much more of a better film than the original Top Gun, yeah. and, like, that's okay. Like, like it kind of... <laughs> It kind of should be. And so I just love that they didn't make a movie that's like, hey, we're going to like roll out all these old characters. People still love Top Gun. They'll go see it. You know, people would have went and saw this movie no matter what. For sure. And so the fact that like, hey, we're actually going to take this franchise, 
We're going to dust it off and see if there's something beautiful underneath the surface. That's what they did, and it was worth going to. And so I think that's a good meaning of the movie, Andrew. I think so, too. So I think the big takeaway here is uh, if you are listening to this podcast and Top Gun Maverick is still in theaters, go see this movie in theaters. I cannot stress that enough, baby. <laughs> like, yeah, go see it. See this. Or go see it again. Go see it again. Like, as long as you have the chance to see this with the best sound system on a big old screen, like, take that chance because this is this year's thrill ride in cinema for sure. That's it. That is the meaning of the movie. Good job, Andrew. I hope you had a thrill ride hanging out with us today, uh, listeners. We so appreciate you being here. As always, like, subscribe, review. Yes. We'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie. 